0: Open. Oh, hey. Thank you, Martin. <laughs> uh, as you know, we've been working our way through Mark, and I get to this bit. I get to talk about paying your taxes to Caesar. Taxes are a very, very popular subject. So, if you've got a Bible and you wish to turn to it, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. I'm going to be reading it from the ESV version, which is the one that's on the wall. This is what it says. As I say, in mine it's headed up paying taxes to Caesar. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and said to him, and sorry, he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. As I was uh, preparing this, I I remembered a very old joke. So I do apologize. Um, It goes that there are three church leaders out playing golf. Apparently that's what church leaders do. And they were discussing what they do with their offering. And the first one said, well, it's very simple. What I do is I draw a circle on the ground and I throw the offering up in the air, and anything that lands in the circle, that's God's. Anything that's outside the circle. And then the second church lady said, well, actually, I do something similar. I draw a circle in the ground, and I throw the offering up in the air, and what lands outside the circle, that's God's. And what lands inside the circle, that's mine. And then the third church lady said, well, actually... I do it a little bit differently. I throw it up in the air, and whatever God catches, he keeps. (laughs) I did say it was an old joke. We're going to be looking at giving. We're going to be looking at giving to Caesar what Caesar's, giving to God what's God's. And I just want to put it in a little bit of context. Last week... Last week, Paul was brilliant. Okay, if, if you're awake New Day, or, well, just get the recording and listen to it. It's absolutely brilliant. We're looking at the last week of Jesus' human life on earth. We've, over the last few weeks, we've looked at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem with all the crowds shouting, welcoming him, laying palm branches at his feet. We've had Jesus cleansing the temple overturning the tables of the money changers and chasing them out. We've had the cursing of the fig tree and its death. We've had Jesus telling the parable of the tenants, which to those who could understand, it was a clear picture of who he was, why he'd come, and it was a huge slap in the face to the religious leaders of the time. When we were looking at chapter 11, Jesus asked the people around him, the people who were challenging his authority, a question that meant whatever answer they gave, they were going to be in trouble. If you remember, it was, well, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now the authorities, they're coming back at him with what they think is another unanswerable question. In the last chapter, Jesus beat his opponents by forcing them to try and pick one of two impossible options. Here, they're returning the favour by asking Jesus to take sides on a controversy over whether to pay taxes to Rome. And whatever answer he gives, he's going to be in trouble. Or so they think. This time, though, it's not the priests and the scribes and the elders, they actually don't show up themselves. They send two different groups of people. They send the Pharisees, who we met earlier on in Mark, and they send another bunch called the Herodians. And they've both come in to trip up Jesus. And they were very different types of people. The Pharisees, they're really big on the letter of the law. They're all for the political and religious freedom of the Jews. And if Jesus should say, it's right that we give our tribute, that we pay our taxes to Caesar, they're going to have all the ammunition that they need to try and get the people to turn against him. At this time, well, and for quite a few years before as well, many of the Jews, they're looking to overthrow the Roman state. They want a Jewish kingdom of their own with God in charge. To them, the idea that a Roman, a Gentile, could be in charge was horrendous. And so to pay those taxes to such a ruler in their heads, actually this would be denying that God's in charge. This is a real, live issue to these people. It's already, by the time Jesus is speaking, it's already led the country into turmoil. In the Gospel of Luke, in the Christmas story, in Luke's account of it, you know, we've got Mary and Joseph and donkeys and stables and stars and angels and all that sort of stuff. They're moving because of a census. Quirinius has ordered a census so that he can tax the people. Actually, that happened, and when it did, if you look into Jewish history, there's a guy called Judas, not that one, a different one, Judas of Galilee, and he led a rebellion against paying the taxes. Actually, the Roman authorities destroyed that rebellion. They brutally put it down. And since then, up until Jesus' time as an adult, there's all sorts of groups and factions splitting up and wanting to overthrow Rome. I so. Oh, I so one to say, you know, groups like the People's Judean Front or the. And, <laughs> a bit of a Monty Python joke. You have to be British, I'm afraid. Um, but I shan't say that. There were, however, a very famous group called Zealots, and actually it's quite possible that one of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot, I think the clue's in the name, was one of those. This is going on all through Jesus' life. It's a real important issue. Actually, it continued after Jesus' death. There was the great Jewish revolt in the years, um, AD 66 lots of other religious reasons behind it as well, but it was basically a massive poll tax revolt. And the Romans destroyed the Jewish people. They plundered the temple, they executed up to 6,000 Jews. There was a full rebellion. And in AD 70, the Romans break down the walls to Jerusalem, they destroy the temple. Paying taxes to Rome is a big deal, and the Pharisees knew it. Should you pay your tax? If Jesus says that, he could turn the people against him. And on the other hand, we've got a group called Herodians. They were great backers of the Roman power, and if he should disagree with paying tribute to Caesar, then they could turn the governor and all the local authorities against him. The Roman leaders were a little bit touchy about anything that looked like resistance. They could be very tolerant of different religions and cultures, but only as long as you accepted Roman rule. So if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes, then he could be turned over to the Romans as someone who's encouraging a rebellion. These two groups are not on the same side at all. They completely contradict each other. But they're prepared to betray their principles, to work together to try and bring Jesus down. tells you a lot about their motives. They pretend they pretend that they really do think of him as a wise teacher of someone whose opinion they value. But it's all false. It says it in the passage. They want to trap him in his talk. It's not a real question. Loads of folks came to Jesus with real questions. We've heard some of them before in previous weeks, like the rich young ruler. Some people would come with genuine questions to find out more about him. Jesus, can you please tell me how? Whatever. Actually, others probably weren't as friendly, but came wanting to know, Jesus, as a teacher, what do you think? They'd be having genuine questions These people don't. They just want to catch him out. They want to waste his time. They want to tie him up in knots. They want to make him look stupid. They want to get him into trouble. They want to alienate him from some of the people. It's not a genuine question. And I think that's important because actually sometimes we get faced with the same thing ourselves. I have three points. And that's my first one. Not every question is genuine. As questions, we get asked questions about life, about faith, from our family, from our friends, from our work colleagues, and even on things like the Alpha Course. Not all of these questions are genuine. We don't need to be dragged into trying to answer every single whimsical question from every single person. As a Christian, what do you think God's favourite colour would be? (laughs) I don't know. If Jesus were here... What would his favourite television programme be? Really? We do get some stupid questions. Actually, we also get people asking us questions about some of the issues of the day. Women bishops, suffering, death, abortion, same-sex marriage. Sometimes people have genuine questions. On the Alpha course, which I'm sure most of you have been to at some point, we say things like, no question will be too hard. Uh, That's not true. (laughs) No question will be too easy. No question is too stupid. (laughs) Sometimes questions aren't genuine. I know on some of the different Alpha courses I've been on, I've been suckered into all sorts of strange questions by not picking up the motives that are behind them. I can remember on one Alpha course, I sat down to talk to a guy. um, Are you a Christian? Oh, yes, I know Jesus. Oh, cool. And his question to me was So, as a Christian, what do you think about time travel? And I thought, God lives outside of time. I am traveling in time, just one second at a time forwards. He said, well, I do. And I travel backwards and forwards in time. And I've met Jesus. And I thought, oh, that's what you mean. Okay. And I then lost about 20 minutes of the evening where I could have been talking to other folks whilst he said some very, very silly things. He wasn't asking me. A genuine question. I've had other guests on Alpha who have asked sometimes really quite threatening questions, but they've been really genuine in their motives. I remember a girl who came on one of our Alpha courses who just came in cross and angry at God. How could he allow suffering? How could a child die? I was a live issue to her because her son had died. It was a genuine question. We didn't try to answer it straight away. We just loved her and made friends with her. She became a Christian, the Alpha course after that. And I remember another lady who, at the time, I thought it was a really strange question, but it's just where she was at. We talked about who is Jesus. And she collared me afterwards and said, Okay, I don't get it. So there's God and there's Jesus, but there's one God and there's two of them. I don't get it. And I said, No, it's okay. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and of course, there's God the Holy Spirit. And she just stopped me and went, Whoa, there are three of them? It was a genuine question because she didn't know. Not every question we get asked is genuine. You need to know the motives behind the questions that people ask. Sometimes folks just want an argument, sometimes folks just want to attack Christians. It's just as well we've got a God who can give us wisdom if it isn't obvious what people's motives are. So, I'm going to move on to the answer that Jesus actually gives. Jesus asks for a coin, specifically asks for a coin called a denarius. That's the coin, in fact that's the coin, that you needed to pay that specific tax to Caesar and its worth was probably about a day's wage. And this tax needed paying once a year. Actually, that doesn't sound like a bad rate of return, really, does it? One day's wage, once a year. I could kind of go with that. It wasn't the cost of the tax that was the problem. It was the coin. On that coin on the denarius of Tiberius, there's a picture of the emperor. And they describe him on there as the son of the Roman god Augustus and the goddess Livia. And written on the coin, it says this. You can just about make it out. It says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, And then on the back, it says Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. The portrait, the inscription, the words, what it says are completely rooted in Roman belief that Caesar is God, that he's divine. So to Jews, to many folks... Paying with a coin that's connected to saying Caesar's God was horrendous. Actually, it's interesting then that when Jesus doesn't have one of these coins and says to the Pharisees, give me one, and they're carrying one around with them. guess a bit of hypocrisy going on there. Anyway. The coin caused them huge amounts of problems. So, my second point is what Jesus answers with is give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The coin is stamped with Caesar's image. The coin belongs to him. It's right to give it back to him. He's got a legal claim to it. The context in that day and that time, was pay your taxes. And if we move that to a modern time and a modern application, what that means for us is pay your taxes. Okay, sometimes the meaning's quite obvious. Pay your taxes. If you've got a TV, have a TV licence. If you've got a car, have an MOT and some insurance. What it means is be upright, be honest, be true in all of your dealings with money. Pay what needs paying. We've got a moral obligation. It is right for us to obey... The authorities, the government in charge. It says this in Romans 13, it's a bit of a long scripture, but I'm going to read anyway, verses 1 to 7. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist, that exist, have been instituted by God. God's put people in charge. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God's appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain." By the government, all will be consequences. He's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjugation, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay your taxes. For the authorities are ministers to God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Part of giving to Caesar what is Caesar's is paying our taxes. Part is obeying the authorities that God has put over us in the country we live in at the time we live in. Now, actually, it's worth mentioning that when Paul's talking about this, he's calling the, the government authorities God's servants. Actually, they weren't Christians. They're God's servants because God's put them in a the position that they hold. not because they know God or love God. Rulers only have authority because God's let them have it. The proper way to give to God what's God's is by obeying just laws in the country. There's no real wiggle room there either. Just as there isn't with pay your taxes, there isn't with obey just laws. The only time there's any reason for a Christian not to follow the law is if it's in direct contradiction to God's law. Then God comes first. See, that happened to the apostles. In Acts chapter 5, they're told, do not preach. So, of course, they preached. It says this in Acts chapter 5. And when they'd brought them, set them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in Jesus' name. Yet you filled the temple with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood down upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men we're very blessed, fortunate pick your word that in this country actually most of our laws are just it's right that we obey them as we hear in other countries around the world at the moment that's not necessarily the case there are many places that need our prayers we should pay our taxes we should obey the laws The other thing we should give to Caesar is our prayers. Now, I don't mean we should pray to the government. That would be foolish. What I mean is actually it's right to pray for our leaders. It's right to pray for the local MPs, for the local councillors, for the government as a whole. It tells us to do that in 1 Timothy. They need his wisdom They need God's guidance so that we can get on with living our godly lives. To sum that up, what should we do to give to Caesar what's his? We should play our part as a citizen of where we currently live. So, my third point. We should give to God... What's his? Look, I'll be honest with you. My third point has lots of little points in it. There's a whole bullet point list. But I wanted to have three points. We should give to God what's his. Jesus was saying, look, the coin, it's got an image of Caesar on it, it belongs to Caesar. So, surely then the logic is anything that's got an image of God on it belongs to God. Now is there anything with an image of God on it? There is. It's us. Four times in the book of Genesis it says we are made in his image. What Jesus is saying is look, give to Caesar this money because he's got his picture on it. It's his. But give to God your life because your imi- his image is on your life we are his genesis 126 everyone is created in the image of God he owns us he's got the right to demand that we give him our lives He's got the right to say how to live. He's got the right to say what's right and wrong. The image that we bear, his image, is a symbol that he owns us. He's got the right to tell us what to believe. He's got the right to demand our obedience. So, what do we give to God? We give him our lives. Now, there's many ways of looking at that. To give him your life, to start with, is becoming a Christian. It's admitting that, look, we've tried to ignore the fact that God symbols on us. We've not lived up to his standards. He created us, it's his standards that matter and we've not lived up to them and that actually we'd be separated from him forever. Go on, Alpha, you'll hear the whole thing. And actually, there's nothing you can do about it without Jesus. Giving your life to him, believing that Jesus, who didn't commit any sin, died to pay for all of ours, and then committing to follow him. If you've done that, if you've become a Christian, then you've started to give your life to him. You've started to have an individual relationship with him. If you haven't, that's the most important one. There's going to be others appear here. If you've not got that one, that's the really important one. If you have, all the rest are important as well. If you haven't, look, that's the important one. If you're not saved, he owns you because he created you. If you are saved, actually, he owns you because you've given your life to him. So the Bible teaches that he's bought us with a price. He's paid for us. We're his. He's created us in his image and he's bought us. We should give him our life. What does that mean? It means we give him our whole life. It's, it's very easy for people to split their lives up into little boxes. A friend put something on Facebook a couple of days ago which said that men were really, really good at putting their lives into little boxes. I think she might be right. God doesn't want a few little boxes. He doesn't want us to Break our lives up into little bits that don't affect each other. So, our religion's one thing, our faith's religion, our family's one thing, our work's one thing, our hobbies is one thing, how we spend our time's one thing, our money's one thing. We don't compartmentalize, we don't put into little boxes our lives. God wants it all. He wants us to be. You know, you get some folks, and I'm sure you've met them, and I'm sure there's none here, but you get some folks who actually, as soon as they step foot into a church setting, their entire language changes. What they talk about suddenly changes. If they weren't in church, then they would say all sorts, do all sorts. But as soon they've got everything boxed up into little bits, that's not what Jesus wants. That's not how we give our lives to him. It's not, it's not that if we're not inside a church meeting, what we do doesn't matter. God cares about every part of our life. When we give our lives to him, he's talking about our whole life our work life, our private life, our family life, it all belongs to God. If something's not acceptable when you're with your church family, it's probably not acceptable, full stop. It's not that it's okay as long as no one from church knows. God's in charge of it all. God owns it all. God wants it all given to him. It means when we give our lives to him, God should make a difference in the way we work, in the way we relate to our friends, to the people we spend time with, our neighbours, our family. He wants our whole life. So that's it, really. He wants the whole, the whole thing. That's the first step. Without giving your life to him, As I say, these next points that are coming up, get that one sorted first. So, we give him our life. We also need to give him our praise and worship. David says this in Psalm 63, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. We need to give God praise and worship. Actually, the inference in in that, that passage is we really need to step into extravagant praise and worship. It's not, well, when that first song's finished and I've woken up, then I might praise him a little bit. Well, I say that. I'll do that as long as it's not such and such a person leading worship. Or actually, I will be able to worship him as long as we don't sing that song. I'm sure we've all got one of those. Giving our praise and worship is something we should just do. And not just here, corporately on a Sunday, but also... In our own times together with him singing and praising his name outside of a Sunday it's a bit radical might involve a bit of sacrifice and effort but we should give him our praise and worship, That's why we were created we should give him our prayers we should pray that's part of our praise and worship thanking God for what he's done Saying how great he is, but he also wants our prayers when we need things. It says this in Philippians chapter four: "Do not be anxious about ev- anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. He wants to be involved with us. He wants a relationship. He wants us to be real with him about where we're at and what we need to get through life. He wants to hear from us. And he wants to show himself to be God and act and answer our prayers. He wants us to know him more. And he wants to move and bless us. We should give him our prayers. We should give him our finances. Do you know what there is? There's whole talks about that. I'll try and keep it short. He deserves everything. He doesn't ask for all of our finances, but we should give him our finances. It says this in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart is whatever we put our money into shows what we're interested in. If you're interested in reading books, you buy books. If you're interested in trains, you buy trains. If you're interested in technology, you buy geeky gadgets. I know, because that's me. Where your interest is, where your heart is, you put your money God wants a proportion of our income. We can show him where our heart is for him. Actually, it works the other way too. If you start putting money into something, you're going to be interested in it because you've put your money there. So we can give to God and develop an interest in him. (laughs) I read a great analogy about it. Um, It's a game of Monopoly. You play Monopoly. You might own lots of properties. You may even get to be the car. But you might own lots of properties, have lots of money, be the one that wins the game. But actually, at the end, it all gets put back in the box. And if you try and go and buy anything real with the wads of pink 500s and orange 100s that you've got nobody's gonna take it, it doesn't count, it's not real that's the same with our money, actually we need to give it to God, to invest it in him because we can't take it with us when you're you're a child it's hard to get your head around the idea of oh it's good to give because actually as children we like to receive but when you're older and you become a parent actually you start to understand it is good to give when you see the look on your children's faces when you buy them a present when you give them something they weren't expecting you find actually there's more joy in giving than receiving God loves it when we give cheerfully. He gets a huge amount of pleasure from just blessing us with stuff and providing us with stuff. And we give to him. God wants to be generous. I bet you can look back in your life and think of times where God has given to you generously. And I was a, when I was a student, me and my friend Matt, we so wanted to go to Bible Week, which in those days, in the church we were in, was in Wales. And as students, we had nothing. So, somebody gave us enough money to get the car down to Wales, and the only way we could afford Bible Week was dead simple, we worked So we worked pre-week, building stages, doing strange things for kids' workers. Then we worked main week, cleaning toilets, cleaning up after campers. And then we started to work setting it down, packing it all away, just so we could be there. It was brilliant. And then we started to set off back from Wales And we'd been going a good half an hour before the engine in the car blew up. And we were in the middle of nowhere. A very nice farmer took us to a town called Welshpool. Um, If you're from there, it's lovely. There's nothing there. We had no car, no means of transport, no money, no friends, knew no one, and it's before mobile phones are. Farmer abandoned us in the middle of Welshpool and said, look, I don't know what to do. So we went to the police station, and they said, you're sleeping in your car. I'd love to be able to say my level of faith at that point was, no! My level of faith at that point was, I'm having the back seat. (laughs) Matt's level of faith was, I've got a God who provides. I've got a God who's generous. I've got a God who gives back to me. God's going to provide for us. So I went along with him. I so wish it was me, it just wasn't. And we walked up and down Welshpool High Street, and we walked past a couple of... I've got to be careful how I put this. A couple of more established churches who didn't really make welcome to very smelly, dirty students. We just weren't welcome. We saw the door of a Pentecostal church, went and knocked on the door. This young young wife opened the door, and we said, look, we're two Christians on our way back from a Bible camp. We've got nothing. Can you help? And her face lit up. And she invited us in, and we spent a lovely evening with her and her husband, who then, halfway through the evening, said, look, you don't have to go back and sleep in your car. As a church, we've been working on a project to house some homeless people. Last week, we finished building our extension with bedrooms showers fridges television it's not open yet no one's used it would you two like to stay there god absolutely met our needs more so than we could ever wanted god's a generous god what does he want from us A little bit of our money, and he provides everything we need. We should give him some of our finances. We should give him our time. In order to spend time with, in order to know someone better, you need to spend time with them. God wants our fellowship, not just time at church. Time in daily prayer, time in reading the Bible, time spent seeking God. I read a survey, I'll admit it's American, um, and it looked at how people spend their time. So the average American, if such a thing exists, in a day would spend eight and three quarter hours sleeping. I feel jealous about that. Three and a half hours working... I feel very jealous about that. Two and three quarter hours watching television. Three quarters of an hour shopping. 35 minutes on housework. 12 minutes on lawn care. (laughs) And in an average day, about nine minutes on a religious activity. The average Christian spends 15 minutes a week in prayer. We've been given 24 hours a day. Let's decide to use our time wisely. Give to God our time. And then the last bullet point on there is talents and gifts. We've all been given talents. We've all got stuff we're good at. Use it for God. We all get given, or we all can be given, spiritual gifts. We saw some this morning. Give them to God. God gives us gifts. We should use them for him. Actually, as a start, we should use them. But we should use them for him. We need to give to Caesar what's his give to God what's his and we shouldn't mix the two of them up we shouldn't give to others what belongs to God we shouldn't worship other things in Jesus' time that might have meant coins with pictures on actually for us It's priority. Putting God first. Putting the thing that we care the most about, Jesus, first. As our creator, as the one who gave everything he had for us, as the sovereign ruler of the universe, as someone who loves us, someone who wants the very best for us, He has the right to be our top priority, to be number one. He has the right to have our lives and every aspect of them. We need to give to God what is God's. I'm going to ask Andy and the band to come back up. And... I was thinking, there are bits that if we're honest and we looked at our life, there's probably some of those where, yeah, I've not fully given that to him. I was thinking about myself, thinking, actually, you know, there's there's a couple of those. I could be much better with my time. You know, I'm... I'm a geek. I like to sit there with my tablet, reading different things. I could be reading a book. Actually I could be doing reading a devotional. I could be reading a blog about what's going on in different churches. And then do you know what? A little thing'll pop up in the corner. And it'll somebody saying, I've beaten your level at Candy Crush. There's a couple of people looking at me guiltily because it's them that have been... And suddenly I'll get distracted and I'll go away and I'll play a game and I could use my time a lot more wisely. We're going to sing. We're going to worship because God deserves our worship. And whilst we're doing that, I want you to think, actually, in that list... Is there something that, do you know what, that belongs to God and I'm not giving it to him. I'm not going to make a big song and dance about it. We live under grace. All we need to do is say to God, I'm sorry, that's yours. You deserve it and I've been giving it to someone else. I'm sorry. Please help me change. We're going to worship and we're going to ask him, actually help me give to you what's yours. Let's not muddle it up and give to Caesar what's God and give to God's what's Caesar's. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship. Father God, thank you that you own us. Thank you that we bear your image Thank you that you saved us, you bought us and made us your own. Father God, help us. Help us to give to you everything in our lives that you deserve. Father God, help us. (laughs) Help us to live a life that is for you, that gives you the glory, that gives to you all the praise, honor, time, prayers, everything that you deserve. Father God, help us to give to you what's yours. Amen. Amen.